Dell. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. You can find that on page 1036. We'll be reading from chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. And this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to give a little bit of context for this, this reading. Uh, it's after, in Luke chapter 15, we have those three parables about lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. So that's chapter, that's chapter 15, the prodigal father and the two lost sons. And then this also comes directly after uh, what Victoria preached on last week, which is sometimes called the parable of the shrewd manager, the parable of the man who sort of gave away some of his master's possessions as a way of preparing for the future. Um, and so this is in a collection of parables, but it's, and it's kind of connected to both of these previous parables, as we'll see. It has a bit to do with money. It has a bit to do with wealth. It has a bit to do with how God pursues people. Um, and again, it's a parable. So we have some interesting, I guess, habits that we can develop when we look at parables. One of them is not to sort of push them too hard to make them say what they're not supposed to say, but to let them unfold and have a life of their own and kind of create in us images and questions that we can ask. But just to give us sort of a taste, um, what, are, what is this parable about? What can you be looking for? Well, one thing is it, it is about wealth and it is about inequality of wealth. It's also about preparation. Victoria, Victoria uh, spoke to that in the children's message. She always kind of gives us a great foundation. I really appreciate that. But it's also about testimony. The, the parable is about what does it take to get through to somebody. And there's actually a little bit of pessimism, rare pessimism from Jesus in this parable. Or it could actually be realism. It depends on who you ask. So look for all these things as we go to our reading. Our reading is Luke 16, 19 through 31. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, again, this is a beautiful, parable-rich section of scripture. You start in, in Luke, in this middle part of Luke, and you read for several chapters, and you get all these great parables. And um, I want to sort of just talk about what things that are you may see in this parable that you don't want to take too far, okay? I've talked about not pushing things too far. And one of them is this idea of karma, right? Which kind of came out there, and that's really not the point of the parable. It, it, it almost sounds that way, like if you were rich and happy in life, then you're by automatically going to be sort of in agony in the afterlife. And if you were poor and ill in regular life, then you're going to be blessed and happy in the out. So it's like, no matter what choices you make, right, some of this automatic reversal of everything is going to happen. That's not what this parable is saying. That just happens to be what happened in this particular case. So don't read into this a sort of a nod to a karmic tradition in some other religion. It's not there, okay? Some uh, people might do that. Others might uh, sense that poverty itself is a virtue, right? And so we, we actually have a strand, almost a strand of Christian theology that holds that to be poor is to be blessed in these particular ways that almost take away your moral responsibility. Because if you're poor, you really can't do anything wrong. And I think we all know that that's not true, right? I mean, everybody, rich people can make good choices and poor people can make bad choices. Your, your wealth doesn't affect all the moral choices you make. But... Um, as we saw in our reading from 1 Timothy, wealth brings with it a great number of temptations and a great number of burdens with it and a great, uh, great number of sorrows that people can pierce themselves with if they look for it. So wealth by itself is not bad, but the pursuit of wealth above all else leads to all sorts of problems. Um, so let's keep that in mind. But here are some things that I want us to notice about this parable. And this is, these are all uh, items that I think can help us sort of enhance our understanding here. One is <clears throat> that there is a interesting, some interesting reversals going on in this parable. The first one is that one person in this parable has a name, and the other person in this parable doesn't have a name. In fact, the people who were originally reading this parable were so taken by this that they created a name for the rich man. They called him Dives, which is the Latin name for word for wealth. And so they, because they wanted both of them to have names. But you should always pay attention when something's missing in scripture too. This is an important theological concept. When something is missing in scripture, it tells you something. So the fact that this man had no name in this story, but the poor man did have a name, Lazarus, not to be confused with the other Lazarus, because this is a parable, means that already the, 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 the scales are beginning to tilt towards this poor man. You get that? To have a name is to have honor, to have a name is to have an identity, to have a name is to have worth and value. And so Lazarus has it, even though he has no value to anybody in this life. And the rich man who has all sorts of value, which he can look at, he can look at the pile of money he has in a room somewhere, 
he has no name. So already, as Jesus is telling this, some of the people listening would have said, how is it that the rich man is nameless and the poor man is not anonymous, right? We, we love to think of the, they, then they would think, we love the anonymous poor, but rich people, they should have a name because we, we need to know uh, who to say nice things about, so we'll get rewarded for it, for, for example. Um, but there's all sorts of other sort of reversals that happen both in the previous uh, parables and this one. One is that there's often a reversal of, of expectations about how the world works. So the fact that a prodigal son, we call the prodigal son, the lost son goes off to the far country and then comes back and expects only to be a servant in his father's household, but yet the father says, no, 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 you're my son. That's a real reversal of expectations. People would have, would have thought, oh, that's, he, he gave up his sonship when he wanted his father to be dead, right? So there's a reversal of expectations that come. And the same thing here. Um, in, we had a, a, a parable just earlier, a few weeks ago, where there's also reversal of honor. Jesus tells the story, when you go to a feast, don't take the best seats. Take the lowest seats because the seats are going to shift. Your honor at this feast is going to get turned upside down. So, so there's always a reversal of expectation, a reversal of honor. And even here, there's a reversal of attitude about wealth because at that time, not everybody, but it was generally believed that if you were wealthy, you must have done something right. You must be a righteous person on some level for that blessing to have come your way from God. And at the same time, if you were poor and if you were diseased, like Lazarus was in this case, you must have done something wrong. And so we get that even in the Gospel of John, we find that people come to Jesus and they say, because there's a blind man, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're trying to box Jesus in, because uh, here, here are two bad choices, Jesus, pick one of them. You know? And he's like, I'm not picking any of your choices. This was done so that God's glory might be revealed. But it was commonly thought that if somebody was blind or lame or had leprosy or was, or was poor, is there was almost a karmic tradition, a karma going on, that they had done something wrong, and their illness and their poverty was a punishment from God for that. But here, this parable is turning upside down, reversing this idea about wealth, because as we see, of course, in the afterlife, Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, and the rich man goes to Hades or to hell. One other thing you want to notice about this parable that will help us is that there's another group that's not named, and that's the community. They're not mentioned except for in one sort of brief way. It says that Lazarus was brought or laid to at, at the rich man's gate. And it's a passive verb, which means it was happening to him. It, that means that somebody else had to do it. And in this parable, that's an important detail, is that he didn't just crawl from his house to the gate and, and beg all day, but he had help. There may have been other people in this community, this is how people would kind of be hearing this, is that they, there might be other people in the community who didn't have enough money to feed him or help him all the time, but they could at least carry him from his, wherever he lived, you know, and they could put him at this gate, which was a good place to beg, in the hopes that this rich man or other people like him would notice him. And so we see that the community is doing its part. But one person in the story who has no name is not doing his part, and that's the rich man. And so that, that, help, that makes the rich man's indifference 
even more pronounced because people with less than him are doing more than him. And so we see these sort of how much more and reversal type of things beginning to emerge in the parable. The other last thing, uh, actually the second to the last, is that it says that the man is, is feasting in luxury. Other Bible translations have sumptuous. Um, he's feasting in luxury. He's got a lot of wealth. He's got more than he needs. Uh, that's going to be important later. And then some rare pessimism. Uh, and I, I, I want you to hold on to that word with just sort of loosely because it's not the best word. Maybe realism is the best word. But that at least in the testimony or, or in the testimony of this parable, there's this reluctance to think that even somebody coming back from the dead would change somebody else's mind. And we hear, see here that Jesus must be talking about himself in this parable too, because it's, it's, it's too pointed. We're too close to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus says, even if somebody comes back from the dead or rises from the dead, that's an important word, um, it may not have much effect. To which you might say, then what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you going to Jerusalem to die and be raised again if you don't think that that act will have some effect on the world? Now hold on to that and hold on to it loosely. It sounds like pessimism, but we're going to work, we're going to work our way through it. Okay. So, I want to talk a little bit about what I think this parable is about. Um, and actually, as I said earlier, it's, it really is about more than one thing. There's several layers in this parable, and they all work together in this beautiful way. But, but to talk about the first thing, I want to go back to Leviticus 23:22. It's about the law of gleaning. Gleaning is when, after somebody's gone through the fields and they've harvested everything, a bunch of stuff will have fallen down, or there'll be some, a few stalks that still have a few grains on it that you could grab. And there was a law in Leviticus 23, 22, which reads like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien or the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so what this is saying is that those of you who have farmland, don't go through your field with this fine-tooth comb and take away every last little grain so that you could store it up over here. Leave some, because in the process of harvesting, there's always going to be some left over for people who are willing to do the much more difficult labor of going through it. So you might see this simply, you could do this with your plastic bottle, I suppose, right? Instead of taking it home, you could put it on top of a garbage can and somebody who needs it more will come along with a plastic bag and fill it up. We don't like to think about this, but that's kind of a similar concept in our time is that you could leave, your, instead of taking your plastic bottle home, this worked more in Norway because you could actually go to a grocery store and get money for a plastic bottle. You could just hand them the bottle and they would give you money. And so if, you know, it happens here, but not nearly as much money. It's, it's not as big a money maker as it is in Norway. Leave that aside. But this is something that was a provision for the vulnerable in the society. If they were willing to work and they could get and they could follow people doing the harvest, they could gather up enough that they could subside on, they could live off of this. And I, I think this would be a mistake if we thought that this was only a rule for farmers, right? Um, 
There's other places um, in, in, in Leviticus that talk about not only is this for your field, but it's also for your olive orchard. You don't beat the olive tree more than once to shake out the olives. You beat it one time, you get the olives, and then other people can come and they can pick a few olives off of it. Same with your grapevines. You even leave some grapes on the vine for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in the land, the poor. Um, but it's not just for farmers. It's not just for people in, in agriculture. It's really it's about what we do when we already have enough. And there is some amount left over. It's smaller than what we've taken for ourselves, but it would be a lot to somebody else. And an interesting mental exercise for all of us is to ask ourselves, what are the gleanings in your house, in your budget, in your wallet? What is it that you need to live on? What is it you need to even have a comfortable existence? What's left over after that? Do you need all, do you, you can ask yourself this, you, well, I want to prepare for my future. I want to send my kids to college. Great, you should budget for that. But what's, what's left over? Those are the gleanings. In Leviticus, it says those are for the widow and the orphan and the stranger in the land, the vulnerable in the land that cannot feed themselves, that cannot take care of themselves. What are we doing? What are our gleanings? Now, we could say it's money, but what's even more valuable than money is I'm getting older. I'm going to be 50 in November. Whoop, whoop. Uh, what's more, what's more, even more valuable than money? You know, it's time. What am I doing with my time? This most valuable resource that I have now. Um, how much... Do I need for myself? How much do I need for the people closest to my life? How much can I set aside for other people and other things? It's a, it's a great question. And this isn't the sermon about stewardship. I don't like stewardship sermons because I figure you guys will figure this out yourself. You know what you need to do with your own budgets. But there's a call in Scripture to live on what you need, and the rest is something else that God has some claim on. He has a claim on all of it, actually, but he says, you should have enough for uni. That's a, what, that's a good thing. You should work for that. But there's going to be something left over. And what you do with that is important. It's very important in this story what's happening. Because um, a normal person back then, when this parable was being told, would have, they would have enough at their table, and they would eat it. And there would be a few scraps left. There would be the crust of the bread that nobody wants to eat. You know, uh, my, my godfather tried to trick his kids all the time. He'd open a bag of bread and he'd say, oh, I want, I want the heel of the bread. That's the best part, you know. And he would act like it was like the most amazing part of the bread, right? Where that's the piece we all skip and leave on top of the rest so that they don't get over, un, unmoist, you know. It didn't work. I was like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. Nice try. I'm not that gullible. But, you know, at that time there would be pieces left over and it, it would be no hard thing to carry that out and give it to Lazarus. So how much more than somebody who eats a feast every day, he would have so much left over, but he never takes it out to his gate. So this man, who has no name, is not following the law of gleaning or many other laws which tell him that he should take care of those people who are poor and widowed and orphaned in the land. So he should have known better. That's the kind of thing and actually, he has five brothers with her, who are living with him the whole time. They seem to be in the same lifestyle, and they're not getting it either. So what happens? We'll go through the parable just a little bit. We find out um, that he, 
Lazarus dies. He goes to the bosom, we call the bosom of Abraham or the side of Abraham. And this man with no name dies, and he goes down into Hades. That's the Greek word that we have there. And what's interesting is that he now realizes that he was wrong. He doesn't contest the fact that he is where he is. It's like he, oh, okay. Yeah, I goofed that one up. So I want to actually give him credit that this man actually, in some ways, repents. And I like that because there's not, in this parable, there's not like this monochromatically bad person. He's, he's a bad person in life, but in the afterlife, he kind of gets it, but too late. That's the interesting thing, right? That's the, the whole alarm clock metaphor, which I thought was really powerful. So he doesn't contest God's judgment. He sees it all now, he, and he really, he cares about his brothers. I don't want my brothers to come here too. And so he's actually kind of showing some concern outside of himself. He's still within his own family, and he he's also doesn't like that his... It's really hot there, and so he's asking for Lazarus to, to, to bring some water down to him. Um, and so then he asks, can't Lazarus go and warn my brothers so that they won't fall into this same predicament that I'm in here? And the answer is, well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the law and the prophets. Moses is another word for the law, and that should be enough. That's what Abraham says. That should be enough. Um, and he says, yes, that should be enough, but they're, they're good at ignoring the law, right? Uh, it would really get their attention if somebody came back from the dead, right? That would really, and instantly everybody should go, whoa, okay, this is, this is taking a turn, an interesting turn, a good turn. Um, and so the purpose of the parable expands at this moment, from being about reversal and wealth and the law, which is all about those things, it definitely is, and it turns into a parable about testimony. Um, it's not like these brothers didn't know the law, they knew it, everybody knew it, but they were too comfortable to follow it. They had what they needed in this life and they left God out of the equation. So they knew, they knew that they were doing something wrong, but they were too comfortable to really, to, to stop pressing the snooze button, so to speak. Um, and so God, this is great, God is good at math. We leave him out of the equation, and he will do the same with us. And not even in a harsh way. We can say to God, I've got this. What you're offering, I can do without. I can do without the law. I can do without the cross. I can do without what Jesus does for me. And then God says, sadly, he says, so be it. And so these men, and, and this rich man and his brothers, are living a life outside of God. The law is not penetrating into their heart. It's not is not going into their actions. They're not taking care of the poor. They're not, they're, they're gathering all their gleanings into their own storehouse, so to speak. So Jesus is telling this parable about his listeners. There's some rich people in the crowd listening to this, and he wants them to hear it, and they know it's about him. But he's also telling this parable about himself. And these are the best parables when Jesus has a character in there that's about himself. Uh, when he comes back from the dead, will people even notice then? And will they listen to what he has to say? And here is where I find Jesus at his most pessimistic. Do you catch that, that pessimism? That Moses and the prophets should be enough for your brothers. 
people, and even if somebody were to rise from the dead, they would not, they would not pay attention. And this is hard, because then what is he doing? He's on his way to Jerusalem. The next chapter, he's in, he's in Jericho, and he's talking to Lazarus, and it's just a few days' journey up the hill, and the, the Passion Week begins. So he's really right at the doorsteps of the cross. Why is he going to the cross if when he's raised again, nobody will listen? And that's where I would actually turn this from pessimism into realism. This is a parable. Let's not push it too hard. It's a general principle, which is that people who are comfortable have a hard time listening to anything else, not even this miraculous appearance of somebody who was once dead and is now alive. But we don't foreclose on hope. So I want to reverse this reversal one more time. Um, because how the rich man ends up is not the whole story, and the pessimism about his brothers is not the whole story. You know, God is good at math. Did I say that? Did you know what? He's actually really bad at math. Do you believe me? Do you remember? Just two weeks ago? One is greater than 99. He gets an F in math, our math, but this is God's math, okay? You cut God out of his life, your life, God's going to cut you out of his life. No. He'll seek for you. He will pursue you. He will try to find you. He will never stop looking. He's like the father in the story of the lost son. He will stand at the gate and wait every day to see you coming down the road. He does not give up on you. He does not write you off. He does not take you off one side of the equation like with an eraser on a chalkboard. He does not do that. I kind of was lying to you earlier. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? God is really bad at our math. He's really great at his own math, but he's really bad at our math. He leaves the 99 and he goes looking for the one. And you know what else is a reversal? Somebody coming back from the dead will make a whole lot of people listen. It, and it has. I'm not just saying that because I want it to be true. I'm saying it because it's actually true. Think about it. If Jesus had not come back from the dead, this building would be an orchard or a high-rise or I don't know what it would be, or it would be a housing... The Christian church would not exist. The billions of people who are Christians, some nominal, but that doesn't matter. They're still here. They still have access to the word. If Jesus had not raised, been risen from the dead... Christianity would have never thrived or flourished because it would all have been a pack of lies. Can you hear Phil Collins just now? A pack of lies, right? It's not going to work. Without the resurrection, none of this works. So if someone does come back from the dead, will people listen? I'm going to reverse this parable. Yes, and they have, and they will, and they do. Now, some people won't. That's true. And this, so this parable becomes a warning all the more. Some people will not listen. In fact, most people won't, but 12 will. 12 will witness it, or 11 actually. 11 will witness it. And from there on, the whole set of dominoes keeps falling in a good way. And here we are. People do notice when someone comes back from the dead. It's the biggest event in history. So it's a parable about warning. And here they are. Here are the warnings. It's a warning about being content, 
with what we have and willing to share from the table. It's a warning about knowing the law, which is not to condemn us, but because it gives us life and it gives other people's life to share what we have. We have more than we need. It's a warning about how God pursues us all our lives, but there is a point, there is a point when it's too late. There is a point when it's too late. So the word is be ready, be generous, and then fall into the arms of the loving God who seeks you again and again. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Father, it's a word of warning today. Help us listen. Amen.